So I'm sat in a very, very windy Leicestershire garden. The wind is howling. It's raining. I've got two dogs near me, one of which will kick off for absolute certain. But I'm looking at a screen at my beautiful friend, Sarah Cohen, who is sat somewhere in New Zealand and the sun is streaming in. She's got the most, I've always been jealous of your hair. You've got the most glorious Michael Hutchins hair and the sun is bouncing off her face and it looks utterly amazing. Hello, Sarah. Hello. It's lovely to see you, Mark. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. It's a long way from uh, meeting, isn't it? In a field in Wales. <laughs> it is. 10 years ago. Was it, was it at the Do we met? Was that where we met? The Do lectures? It was at the Do lectures. And the Do lectures actually ended up being quite a, a formative time in my life, actually. That's not uncommon, you know. Um, number one, they're amazing. And number two, people seek them out at the times where they need to change. So the lectures are brilliant, but actually all the changes from within, always. Well, the, lectures, the lectures were actually gifted to me by my bosses, and it just came at the most perfect time, actually. I think they could, they could see that it was something that I kind of needed, actually, at the time. Yeah, for certain. So look, um, before we get into everything, just tell me really quickly, tell me about yourself. So I'm Sarah. Hello, everyone. Um, I live in Nelson, New Zealand, beautiful part of the world. Never really thought I would end up living in New Zealand. It was never really something that was particularly planned. I absolutely adore it, actually. It's a spectacular part of the world. And it's funny, I think, because I spent many of my latter years talking about slowing down. I think we all do it at certain points in our life. And I don't think I really knew what that meant, actually, until I moved here. So I live here, but I've always thought of myself as a a bit of a city girl. I spent uh, many years living in London and 11 years living in Sydney. My first... I guess, career. I've had a few of them along the way. My first career was in advertising. I was a marketing strategist, working, specializing in customer experience and one-to-one marketing and digital, you know, working with amazing brands like Waitrose and Sainsbury's and Air New Zealand. And I did that for about 15 years and I loved it up until a point. But the latter of those years, I guess I spent thinking about what I could do that was more creative had this yearning to do something that was more creative, which is kind of ironic uh, working in a creative agency, but it just didn't feel aligned for me. Ironic, but not uncommon. Not uncommon at all. You'll speak to, you know, you you meet so many people who start thinking about what else they can do, you you know, following advertising. You don't see many old geezers, do you, working in advertising, you know, apart from kind of founding partners. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that, but there were kind of two catalysts in my life that kind of got me really to make change. The first was I lost my mum in 2010 and the second was the do lectures in 2011. Following that I took a sabbatical from my job and I borrowed the family campervan and I did a two-month trip around Cornwall and Wales in the middle of winter. I just did lots of long walks and I started photographing what I saw and what I saw was that nature tells us lots millions of tiny little stories and those stories became the basis of me starting to design prints. And so six months after I got back from that trip, I started my first business, which was Sara C. And it was a women's wear print label, a sustainable women's wear label. And I ran that business for five years until in 2015, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. So I took a break, focused on my healing and my treatment. And following that, I did a three-month trip around the world and met my husband. Let's hold it there because this is this is where I want to come back. This is a brilliant place to stop. 
it feels like an exhale. That feels like a, whew, everything's great. But I want to I want to go back, and I always ask the same three questions because they're really evocative. Tell me what your childhood tasted like, smelt like, and sounded like in any order. I love these questions. I um, they really do make you think about kind of like poignant times in your childhood. For me, smell and taste are kind of very much interlinked. So I grew up in a Jewish family, and so cooking was very much at the kind of epicenter of our lives. Like my mother's kind of love language was food. And so, you know, the smells and tastes of my childhood were very much food related. So the kind of clearest memory I have are are Friday night dinners. So although we weren't particularly religious, Friday nights were just a time when we kind of all came together and we kind of celebrated the week over food. And, you know, those foods were, you know, roast chicken, roast potatoes and chicken soup and kind of they're such distinctive tastes of my childhood and smells of my childhood you know, really, really comforting smells and tastes. And so they're kind of, that's what I guess came to my head first of all. And then the second was hot toast and butter. Mm. <laughs> because as, as children, the first thing we did when we finished school was to run in and kind of raid the pantry and get the bread out and toast it and smother it in butter. And it was kind of it all, yeah, all around that kind of comfort. So that's, that's what I think of when I think of those two. Do you still do a Friday night thing? No, it's funny. I don't at all. And there's a few reasons for it. Like my parents divorced when I was 16. And so my mum remarried, my dad remarried, and they kind of remarried partners who weren't Jewish. And so those kind of traditions, we kind of kept them, but they kind of evolved over time. But I guess while we don't still do that, food is still very much in my life, the kind of my way of showing people I love them. Yeah. Of course. I gave this line to Tesco's in a workshop once. <laughs> I gave them the line, we write love letters with food. And they came up with the campaign Food Love Stories. And I find it mildly irritating, but also I'm really proud of that. And I'm proud that I gave it away as well. We've got smell and taste. Tell me about the sounds of your childhood. Sounds. So I grew up in Bournemouth. So the sounds of my childhood very much the ocean and the sea. And I have a couple of quite distinct memories that both related to my grandparents actually the first was that my grandmother on my mother's side they had like a what you would call a batch here but a a flat by the sea and after school in the summer every single day we would go there and we would swim and it was kind of like you know those happy childhood memories and the second was my grandparents on my dad's side and every kind of Sunday they would pick us up and they would take us down to the beach and we would have have ice creams and we would sit by the beach and we would just kind of listen to the ocean. Both your grandparents lived in Bournemouth too? Not originally. So I was born in London and both my grandparents lived in London. All our family lived in London. And then my mum's mother started spending summers, I think, down in Bournemouth. And I think that's where it all began. And so when I was two, my parents, you know, packed up and moved down to Bournemouth, I guess, for not for a better life but I guess you know just to start something new and something different that's amazing and tell me I mean it's, it's really really evocative I know that area I know Swanage and Studland really well they were my childhood holiday I wouldn't I never lived there the holiday places Bournemouth was at that point kind of quite old yeah and of course now it isn't right now it's a different it's almost like a Dorset Brighton right and I, I appreciate how it's changed but those long summers, I remember them so clearly. I remember that feeling of coming out of the sea and the water evaporating and just leaving the salt crystals cracking on my skin. I just remember that so clearly, so unbelievably clearly. 
is, and it's the ocean and the being living by the sea is something that's always stayed with me. And so when I, you know, I spent 10 years in Australia and I, I was kind of like, if you're going to live here, you, you have to live by the sea. And so yeah. my whole time in Australia and, and, and now in New Zealand, you know, I've always lived in really close proximity to the sea. And for me, it's such a nurturing, healing place. Like I'm always, it's my happy place. Yeah. You know, whether I'm in the water, on the water, playing sports or just walking, it's just, yeah. And you are mainly in the water, right? That's your, your thing. Since moving to New Zealand, it's funny. I think, like, Nelson is like, you know, after Queenstown, it's like a huge adventure place. Like, everyone here is, like, multi-sporters. And so, you know, since moving here, I've learned to kayak and paddleboard and we surf ski, which is a bit like a kayak, but it's all about chasing waves and swimming. And so, yeah, we, I do spend a considerable amount of time in the water. <laughs> And it's top of the South Island, isn't it? So it's the milder bit of the wilder island. Yeah, but we're really lucky because we're close to like three national parks. So we've kind of got, I mean, it is a small town, which I didn't think I'd love, but I absolutely love it. But it's got, you know, it's got quite a lot going for it. Um, but we have access to all this amazing beauty. It's, um, it's really quite, yeah, quite amazing. So I'm really interested in, in this. I'm going to just stay with the Friday night dinner really a little bit, just if you don't mind. Your grandparents, which was the one, your maternal or your paternal grand, I'm assuming grandma, who passed on their cooking genes? How did Friday nights, was it just mum cooking or did she get help? So Jewish families, you know, traditionally, you know, it's usually always traditionally being the mother. And so I guess I just always, Friday night things were a thing my entire life. It's what we always did, you know, whether it was around our grandparents or at home family celebrations it was all about food so I think you know as a child my mum spent quite a lot of time in the kitchen and I think as we got older we would spend more and more time with her but it was never really <laughs> it's, so, it's so traditional in so many ways but like my you know my dad spent very little time in the kitchen which I guess is you know something that he learned from his parents yeah quite interesting isn't it? exactly yeah yeah I mean these things are passed down and actually it's interesting my daughter did a really lovely project on this for her she did a degree in fine art at CSM and her final piece was the kitchen as a place of female or feminine sanctuary or feminine the passing on of female stories rather than a place of servitude which of course it can be and you know no one would ever deny that but she looked at it as a place of sharing like history essentially and uh, we often forget that we often forget that in, in our rush to kind of like you know, remove labor and to increase convenience which are both incredible and freeing things there's a little bit of ceremony that we miss it is really interesting and men are often I won't say they're excluded. I suspect they said we exclude ourselves. <laughs> Fucking hell, that's way too hard. I'm off. But they're missing out. They're really missing out. It is interesting because I think, you know, growing up, it was all about sharing and it was about communication and it, it was a very much about tradition. It was. I mean, all our, you know, if I look back, all of our festivals, our Jewish festivals were all around food. And so that was a huge part of my life. And, you know, until I kind of went to uni and then food became a necessity. And I think it was only until I got into my late 20s, early 30s, where it kind of again started to be about bringing people together again. And, and so I'm, I know for me now, for me and my husband, you know, he is a, a massive foodie as well. So food is massive, massive part of our life. And I'm really lucky, you know, he loves to cook. So, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen together. And it's a really lovely thing. Isn't it? Mm. That's amazing. So look, fast forward, right? So 
I've got this view of of this kind of Jewish cradle, this traditional cradle that's mm. holding you. Fast forward, did you go to university after school? Did you go and study somewhere? Did you go straight into work? What did you do? I went to university. I, I had some pretty wild years <laughs> prior to going to university. After my parents divorced, I kind of fell off the rails a little bit. And so I kind of fell into university by the skin of my teeth. And I fell into a degree in business and marketing because they're pretty much the only university that would take me and it's a new course. But it was actually something that I absolutely loved. And so after finishing a degree in business and marketing communications, I started a career in direct marketing. So, you know, at that point, digital wasn't really even a thing. And so I started on a graduate scheme which was meant to kind of fast track my career. And I worked at one of the top direct marketing agencies in London. And and that started, I guess, what was a 15-year career working in agencies, specializing in kind of one-to-one customer experience marketing. Just for the listeners, when you say direct marketing, how would you define that? So you've got mass marketing traditionally, which is, you know, broadcast media, like, you know, TV, what was radio, teletext, if you even remember that you know, more mass broadcast branding. And then what they, you know, used to call below the line, which was more direct communication, which was more one-to-one. So talking directly to customers. So, you know, relationship building, customer building, you know, growing the value of customers. And so that was on a much more direct level. So, you know, email marketing, um, customer relationship marketing, websites, digital marketing. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I just, I think it really helps. I think we live in worlds where we use phrases all the time and we forget that actually someone listening in may not know what that means. Yeah. Thank you. So you merged into that world at a really good, what time, what, what era was this? That must have been around 95, 96. So the middle of Britpop or towards the end of Britpop, if you're a connoisseur. It was huge. Very much the heyday of advertising. And I was working in Soho Square. It was a pretty much, it was a great time in my life. And I spent three years out of university working in the centre of London and then suddenly had a craving to go out and see a bit more of the world. And so I packed up my bags and went to Australia for a year travelling. And then, you know, like everyone else, ended up staying there for a decade. (laughs) We must have gravitated in the same circle. So at that time, I was a design counsellor at Business Link. And we were working in with the design council. So I was down in London, like regularly, but Bow Street went before they moved to that dreadful building they're in now. In Bow Street. So we must have worked, we must have been at the same events. That was it was a really good time. It was was an amazing time. The heyday. It's it's very difficult to describe to people who haven't worked in that environment like exactly what it's like. It was quite an eye (laughs) opener. It truly was, and it was about to get better, wasn't it? Because so my son was born in 96. So I was living in, in Yorkshire, but coming to London. But we had a change of government in 97 that put all the focus of attention on, in terms of creativity on Britain. Britain was like cool again. And God, I miss those days. I know. I don't. When, I, when I look at the shambling idiots we've got in charge these days, <laughs> I really miss those days. At that time, I think we were actually working on the, on the Labour campaign. I think there was a, a secret squirrel section of the agency that were working on the Labour campaign, I remember. So yeah, it was. It was really interesting times, yeah. It was amazing. And the internet was just happening. This was, this was incredible. So you're in the right city at the right time with the technology just beginning to, to inflame and, and take off. How did that feel? Did you feel like some... Did you know that at the time? Did you feel appreciative of where you were? I don't think you ever do at the time, but I guess at the time you knew you were part of something 
exciting. Uh, you know, it was, it was such an amazing environment to be in. I mean, like agencies in those days were just so full of vibrancy and energy. And, you know, we worked hard and we played hard. And, you know, we were doing at the time such, I guess, new things for the businesses. It was so incredibly exciting and, and everything changed so quickly. I mean, to go from I remember working there and they started a new floor above us, which was all around this thing that was called, you know, the internet and digital and the technology changed so quickly and it just opened up so many more doors for all of us. It was, it was quite incredible. That's amazing. And so you've got the world at your fingertips there. Mm. You're working for some of the best brands on the planet and some of the best organizations on the planet. Mm. What did you do next? Went to Australia. I carried on working there. I had a brief interlude in the middle of those 15 years where it's a bit of a theme here. I went to Malaysia for a week's holiday. I was kind of in between jobs and relationships and a friend of mine was diving on a small island in Malaysia and I went to visit her for a week and ended up staying there for a year and working as a dive master. So I had a brief interlude, you know, doing that. And then... I was- so I've got to just call you back. That's too important a statement. So you went on a holiday for a week yeah. and you ended up staying there a year, changing career and developing a new skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did the conversation go with work? Well, I'd actually been made redundant. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, amazing things come out of the unexpected. And so you know, I got there, I was there for a week and I had learned to dive in Australia when I first got there. So I had time on my hands and so I started doing more courses and There aren't many times in your life, I think, where you get the opportunity to just completely disconnect. I mean, it was literally, there was was no Wi-Fi. There was no mobile phones. It was literally, you know, this tiny, tiny island. And it was just about the joy of doing the really simple things and connecting with people and being underwater. It was was a magical 12 months. You know, it's the one time in my life I can look back and say I had literally no stress. It was quite magical. But at some point, you have to go back to reality. But do you? Do you? Wasn't that a reality of sorts? I mean, it was. It was a, it was a very different reality. But, you know, it's, it's not a career where you really make any money, you know. And so you, you do it for the experience and for the love. And at some point I thought, I think it's time maybe to go back. The thing is, water has such a sense of gravity for you. Yeah, it does. Right. It's, it's elastic. It pulls you back. And you grew up with it. I mean, London's full of water as well. And I, I know that the Thames is its own gravity. But to then find it and submerge yourself in it and the way you talked about being underwater was really interesting. I love it. And I'm, it's my elements as well. You weren't just leaving a job or a lifestyle. You were, you were leaving the, the kind of glue that held you together. You were leaving water, which was hardest. I have to admit, just coming back to a city after being in that environment for 12 months was the biggest shock I think to my system I have ever had like you're you're in a place where you are you're literally underwater in this kind of safe space which is so if you've ever dived it's just I find it so incredibly peaceful and then you end up back in a city with you know in Sydney where there's all this noise and cars and it's so overwhelming to the senses I think it took me quite a few months to just adjust to being back it was and, you know, you're still by the water there, but it's such a different thing. It, it did take me quite a while to adjust, actually. <laughs> I'll bet. Was there ever any regret? No, I don't really. I tend not to regret anything I've done. I think it all just kind of builds together to morph you to the next stage or the next step. 
I always regret the things I haven't done. And I've never regretted anything that I've done. Yeah. I've always regretted the things that I haven't done. And they tend to be things like not buying the house at the right time or in the right yeah. place when I had the opportunity. It's always going to be, it's always money, frankly. It's always fucking money with me. But I think you're right. I think that probably started, you know, the next phase of what next, really? Because I think, you know, in those latter years of, of advertising, it was like, you know, what do I do next? And what can I do that is more creative, yeah. you know, or something that kind of fulfills me more? That's interesting. Okay, cool. So you left there and you came back to, was that London? Went back to Australia and stayed there. And then there came a point in 2010 where having been away for 10 years, I thought, ah, maybe it's time to spend a little bit of time at home. So my sister was about to get married. And so I went back to the UK for, again, what was meant to be three months. And coincidentally, at that time, my mum then got sick and she was really sick. She had leukaemia. And so... That kind of, you know, in that instant kind of changed the kind of course of my life, I guess. I kind of gave up my flat and my job in Sydney and moved back to London and ended up staying there for eight years. Wow. (laughs) But it was quite a huge catalyst in, I guess, driving me to start my next business. Yeah. And tell me about that. Tell me about that business. Tell me about what its purpose, what its vision was. You know, to be completely honest which is ironic coming from a planner and a strategist. At that time, I just felt compelled to do something different. I've just lost my mum and I wanted to do something different. And I wasn't 100% sure what that should be or what it looked like. I just knew that I wanted to design prints. I always, I guess, growing up, had a love of colour and texture and vibrancy and I wanted to use that in some way. So I started taking these photos, you know, inspired by nature and started designing these prints and for some strange reason, I decided that the best vehicle for this would be a women's wear label. I mean, I honestly, looking back, don't know what the hell I was thinking because I knew nothing about that world, you know, at all. It was just such a huge learning curve. You know, what would have been the sensible thing to do, you know, to carry on with a job and kind of do it in tandem and grow it slowly? I didn't. I just, I felt like I just needed to do something so completely different. And I felt that I had absolutely nothing to lose at this point in my life. So I just kind of dove in headfirst and started it. Like I literally launched this within six months of quitting my job and it was amazing. And, and, you know, there were lots of highs and lots of lows and lots of mistakes and lots of kind of moments of, yes, I've done this and, you know, small wins and stuff. And I grew that business for about five years until I then got diagnosed with breast cancer. And we'll come to that in a second. Yeah. But it was beautiful. Your clothes. Thank you. Your patterns, the silhouettes. They were so beautiful and so elegant. It was incredible to see, actually. And I think had what happened not happened, I would be really interested to know where that would have gone to. I definitely agree. But it's interesting because it stood me in really good stead for my second business. <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you learn so much along the way, don't you, in terms of what to do and what not to do and, and what business models to use and, you know, the best sustainable models for building a business. And so... You know, none of that went to waste. No, I, I, you're not the kind of person that wastes anything. I can see that. And look, you know, a diagnosis like that is rocking and shocking. How did you muster? How did you pull yourself up? How were you able to lift yourself above the mire? So first time round, it was, there was quite a lot of shock at the beginning. But I remember, um, ironically, my 
surgeon saying to me, look, this isn't going to kill you at the time. And so I kind of decided from the very beginning that I would just deal with it all with positivity and laughter, which sounds a bit strange. But I think, you know, when faced with these things, you really have to laugh. I think you'd go quite crazy. And so I just kind of kept my head down and I put the business on hold and I just focused on the business of getting through the treatment and coming through the other side, which I did. And it kind of, I guess, propelled me to move back to this side of the world and really, you know, change things up. I've got no idea of the timescales of these things. How long was it before you realised that you, well, did you think you were ever going to die with that? And how long was it before you realised that you weren't? And there's two questions. Did some freedom come from that? And is there a long half-life of that fear that, that stays there after the disease is gone? Yeah. It's a really good question. So it, it does give you a sense of freedom. And I think everyone talks about, you know, you get some really, you know, quite big realizations when you're faced with something like that. And for me, it, it did propel me to change my life, to live with more joy. And I, I thought that may sound really freaking cliche, but it, it, no, not at all. it really did. And so, you know, I really literally have changed my life completely moving here. But you know, I didn't really think about dying at that point. I think, you know, I, I knew because of the size of my cancer and the nature of it, that there was always a chance that it would come back. But you can't live your life thinking about that. And so I did everything that I thought I needed to do to make sure that wouldn't happen. And then you have to just carry on living your life. And I did. And I didn't really spend much time thinking about it. I just focused on, you know, getting on with it and living my best life. And you don't really... I didn't really ever expect it would come back. <laughs> no, but it has, right? But the bit between getting the all clear the first time round and where we are now, what did you do? Well, that was, I had five years. So I met my now husband and I was living in London at the time and he was living in New Zealand. And so we started what was a two-year long distance relationship. So we did loads of traveling. I spent the next year in London. I decided to put a halt on the business because... I think one of the one of the many reasons I think I got sick was I was just trying to do too much all the time and so I went back to advertising I started freelancing started saving money and I moved back to Sydney and so we did another year of Sydney New Zealand and I spent a year working in an agency in Sydney and then we got to a point where one of us had to move we had to be in the same country and a job opportunity came up in Nelson and I've never ever been here. I've never really even heard of it. And we just thought, fuck it, you know, like, why not? Like, what's the worst that can happen? So we said, okay, we'll give it a year. We'll see what happens. And we moved here and we, we fell in love with it. Um, we bought a house. And, and then I started thinking, okay, well, what do I do next? Nelson's quite, a, I mean, it's a, an amazing town, but it's quite small. There aren't really any advertising agencies here. And New Zealand as a whole you know, has a limited number of agencies. And so there were quite limited opportunities with someone with my background, really. And so I started trying to figure out what next. And there was something that had been in the back of my mind for a few years. So it kind of started actually out of my first diagnosis. So after I finished treatment for breast cancer, I started looking for some protective swimwear that would cover up my radiation bones. And all I could find at the time were this like skimpy bikinis or like stuff that would, you know, wouldn't have been amiss in a Victorian Gothic novel. <laughs> and so I, you know, started looking for that and then forgot about it and then moved here. And 
you know, started spending so much time on the water. And, you know, New Zealand, Australia have the biggest rates of skin cancer, you know, anywhere in the world. And no one in New Zealand is doing stuff that is stylish and sustainable and beautiful. And so I thought, fuck it, if I can't find what I'm looking for, I'll just I'll do it myself. And so I did. If you can't find what you're looking for in the place in the world of the thinnest layer of ozone yeah. and the most time spent outside, yeah. then someone missed a really big fucking opportunity. I really did. Yeah. Yeah. And you did the right thing. So, yeah. So I launched Akina Akina in July last year. Okay. There's lots of questions here. <laughs> How did it feel giving birth to something like that? What were the biggest fears around doing this? And do you wish you'd done it earlier? So fear's a really interesting one. I think I had quite a lot of fear. I think I had quite a lot of fear of failing, you know, in some regard. I think, you know, you always, well, not always, but I think, I, you know, I, I was doing it instinctively. It felt absolutely the right, like the right thing to do. It, it felt like the right time, the right market, that there was a gap. But instinctively, I think, you know, I was not doubting the idea, but I think it was more doubting myself. And, you know, will it be a success and can I make it work and have I got the skills and am I doing the right thing? But I think it became apparent quite quickly that it absolutely was something that people wanted. And, you know, the, the feedback I got was really amazing. What was the second question? <laughs> the second question, well, that we ended with, do you wish you'd done it earlier? Oh, there was another question, but I can't remember what it was either. But you've, you've just sparked something else in me. But answer that one first and I'll come to the other one. The answer to that is no. Because it was a case of the right time, the right place. If I hadn't moved to New Zealand, I don't think I would have done it. Because I think, you know, I, I found myself needing to have a purpose and a need. And I'm very driven by a purpose to do something. And, and so it kind of, it just it organically happened, I think, at the right time. Yeah. And the thing that's, that, sparked, that sparked in me, you, know, I, you said something like, I didn't know whether I'd be able to do this if I had the right skills. I'm looking at your CV, which is in my head. <laughs> and I'm thinking, OK, she loves water. She understands water. She lives in a climate that's got a very thin ozone layer where you get burnt faster. Bizarrely, you get burnt faster in New Zealand than you do in Australia, even though it's slightly colder, right? That's because of climatics. You understand fashion. You understand pattern. You understand cuts. You understand marketing, direct-to-consumer, you understand everything. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, nobody else could have done this. No one. You're the only one to have done it, Sarah. And I just, I think it's incredible and, and so of its time. And I'm so frustrated that we can't get it here. I'm so, fr- and Nicola also is. You can, you can, we ship everywhere. <laughs> you can, well, there's no stockist here is what I mean. No, and I, that was a deliberate choice because my first business was very much wholesale-led and I decided very early on in this business that I wasn't going to do wholesale. Yeah. I got so frustrated with being dictated by seasons and the need to reinvent new things, you know, three times a year. It's just not a sustainable fashion model. Yeah, not at all. And it wasn't the way I wanted to run my business. And so I think when starting this business, I got the choice to build it from the ground up in a way that was sustainable for me and the environment and so I made a very deliberate choice not to wholesale and to be a purely online model. Amazing and there is a huge opportunity for you outside of just protection from the sun yeah in terms of like two mil neoprene in terms of cold water swimming you know as well as I do that world has gone bonkers and it's a women's world it is there's a witchy, amazing, 
feminine energy that comes and women gather together on the coast in Cornwall. I've been in the middle of this and I felt so like it wasn't my space. I'm I'm flouncing around doing Qigong down at Swampall in, <laughs> in Cornwall. And I'm surrounded by 40 women all going for a swim together, but not together. And I thought, this isn't my space. I, I need not be here. There's something massive here that is open to you. Are you planning on doing anything in that? So the plan was always to be, you know, a UPF 50 activewear label. And I, I started with swimwear purely because that's where I felt the most need. And I guess because of my experience, you know, living here. The plan was always to evolve into other spheres. Yeah, absolutely. Into wetsuits and any other sphere of activewear. But I guess I've just had to, you know, the last six months have kind of made me reevaluate, you know, everything and throwing everything kind of up in the air. Okay, that's interesting. Well, number one, how did the business go? How did it go down? What did people say? Did they like it? Yeah, I was kind of blown away by the response. It was something that, I don't know, seemed to resonate with people. I got quite a lot of press quite early on. So that was really amazing and kind of, you know, word of mouth. And, and so the feedback was amazing. And I think people love prints and they love the styles and they love the fit. And, you know, I've got such amazing customer testimonials. It's just, for me, really lovely knowing that you're making something that makes people happy. And, you know, it's quite a small community here. You know, you see people, you know, using it and people send you stories of, you know, how they've been using it and you know they've been out on their boats or they've been out you know paddle boarding and it just that, that brings me like quite a lot of joy really that's amazing financially did it deliver what you needed it to deliver or was that never a priority so there's never the fundamental priority was to build a business that I loved that had you know some kind of meaning to me which it did and yes of course fundamentally it was about giving me freedom so freedom to live the kind of lifestyle that I live here, which is, you know, being able to go out and go for a swim or go for a path whenever I want and giving me the freedom to work around that. And, you know, for it to be very much focused around kind of adventures and lifestyle. But yes, of course, you want a business to be able to sustain yourself. And it was definitely on its way to doing that. And, you know, the first six months is always, you know, tricky because, you know, you've got such huge overheads in setting up a business. Now, even though I tried to do it quite nimbly, but it has definitely, definitely started to support itself. And actually, my newest kind of like pre-order is self-funding itself. So, yeah, that's kind of the model I wanted it to be. Well, I'm really interested in this point where the business is beginning to take off. You've developed a product that protects against skin cancer. You've beaten cancer. And then it comes back. Mm. Did you know before? And how did you feel? I didn't know. So about a year ago, I started having back pain. Never had back pain in my entire life, but, you know, started getting back pain, went to the osteo, wasn't really getting better. And, you know, so it's funny when you've had breast cancer at the back of your head, when these things kind of happen, they, you know, they start to niggle and you start to get, you know, a bit of worry in the back of your head. And so I took myself off to the doctor and... The doctor ordered an x-ray and the x-ray came back and it was fine. I mean, it showed a few areas that, you know, looked like they had a bit of decay, but, but nothing of, of any concern. And so I thought, okay, that kind of puts my mind to rest a bit. And then I carried on. So I organized an appointment with a bone surgeon just to go and have a look and um, ordered an MRI and that again came back clear. And so I kind of really stopped thinking about it. And 
about six months earlier, I, you know, having just, you know, moved back to New Zealand, I tried to get back into the medical system here. You know, I had a very established team around me in London. And so, you know, I, I tried to get an appointment with one of the surgeons here, which is kind of the way in. And it took me pretty much a year to see this specialist. And so I went to see them and we had a checkup and I mentioned my back pain and they kind of said, look, I don't think it's anything to worry about, but you know, if you're worried, we'll send you off for a bone scan. So I went for a bone scan and lo and behold, it comes back and they are concerned that it is bone metastasis. So at that point, my shiny world, my world was just for the first time in my entire life, kind of like pretty much perfect. I got married at the end of last year, the business was taking off. And then all of a sudden, you're like, what the fuck? Like, I was terrified, to be honest, like, you know, your world is thrown upside down. It's an impossible thing to get your head around. You know, you go to see an oncologist, had the scan done. The scan showed that I had three small metastases in my lung and then obviously the bone. So, you know, all of a sudden you go from being five years clear to having stage four cancer, which I don't know how many people know, but there is no stage five, like stage four is fast as incurable. So, yeah, it was um, pretty awful. Yeah. But, you know, it's quite amazing. You do come through it. You know, you know, you know, I don't know how you would get up in the morning. I don't know. I mean, I know you, there is no alternative. I know that. Mm-hmm. But your strength, your resilience, your tenacity is astonishing. And I just remember seeing your post that morning and thinking, I don't know how I can help you. I don't know what to do. I don't know. What, and I didn't realize you're in New Zealand. I'm an idiot. I thought you lived here at that point. And I'm thinking, well, I'll do something. I'll fucking do something and and if this is all I can do and buy and I will buy a few pieces if this is all I can do and buy a few pieces then that's that's all I can do you have to get up and do this every day and your husband is so new and fresh and you know there's such a beautiful sadness to this what do you think about to stop you thinking about the worst bit of this I think that definitely the first two months, it's all I could think about. Like I woke up thinking about it. I went to sleep thinking about it. I've never had anxiety in my life, but I had anxiety and I had had and always had had this terrible fear of dying. So that was kind of like staring me in the face. But I remember reading a quote in one of the many books I've read that you get to make a choice. And the, and the choice is quite simple. You choose to live or you choose to die. And at the end of the day, there is no choice. Like I want to live. And I think that's something that stuck by me. And I think, you know, I had a mantra in the early days, which I said to people, and I don't know whether it was just, you know, the defences kicking in, but I just said to everyone, you know, I will fight this. I will do everything in my power to make sure that I, you know, survive the odds and I live a fucking big life and, you know, for however long that I have. And that is quite easy to say, but it's not so easy to do. But I think that over time, nature's defences I think you have to protect yourself and so in in many ways you stop thinking about it and I never thought that six months down the line I would get to the point where I don't spend every waking hour thinking about it and I genuinely don't I have got to the point now where I can go on with my life and I'm you know doing as much as my body will allow and we're still doing amazing adventures and I'm filling my life and I'm you know also thinking about what I get to do next and it's kind of really driven me a need to still make a difference and to make sure that whatever I do has some kind of meaning. And that's kind of really important because you, you start thinking about things like, you know, 
what kind of legacy am I going to leave or, you know, how people are going to remember me. But more than anything else, I think you just want to make sure that you're making the most of every moment. And that's easier said than done because life is life and, you know, all this stuff gets in the way. And it's a pretty big job keeping yourself healthy and thriving so you can continue to do all these things, you know. Completely. And, and it is that balance, isn't it? You, you know, you've, you've got a mission around your business and you've got, we've also got responsibilities in terms of your marriage and the responsibilities is the wrong word. You've got love to flourish there, but you can only do those things if you're strong and well. Yeah. And you look amazing, by the way, and you look strong and you look really well. Oh, I mean, there's a couple of questions I want to ask. Where does the business go? How can people find you? Well, I'll put it in the show notes how people can find you. How can people support you? What can they do to help? So it's funny, I spent a lot of time, I mean, not at the beginning, because there was no space at the beginning, but like, you know, what do I do? I've just launched this business. And I think one of the questions was, you know, is there enough meaning in it for me now that I've just been diagnosed with this big thing? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to help me. And so at the end of the day, I thought, well, yes, I still want to carry on making something beautiful and put something beautiful out there in the world. And I decided, you know, a few months ago, that I wanted to use the business as a vehicle to help me fund my treatments. You know, I decided to take a, a very integrated approach to my healing and it's expensive. And so, you know, I, I get to carry on building a business that I love and at the same time, you know, using it to sustain myself and any other projects I kind of want to do down the line. So I guess what I've asked people to do is if they want to support me, I'm not one for asking for help. I don't find it very easy, but, you know, support me by sharing the brand, you know, sharing my story, buy the product if you love it, buy it for yourself, for your friends and your loved ones. And just help me share, share the word. I'm also working on another project at the moment, which is in its very, very, very early stages. And that's really just a little idea, which is just about building a global space to support and inspire people to live and to thrive with kind of chronic illnesses, just, you know, space to inspire women to live in amazing lives. That's amazing. That sounds like a, look, you know, you talked about these feelings of, have I created a dint? What have I left behind? And you've dropped the most beautiful breadcrumbs as you've walked through life. And, you know, I don't think anybody that's met you will ever think that you were irrelevant. You bring beauty and grace, all the things that you brought to Sarah C., that poise, that beauty, you cut a fine line through life. And I think that's really clear. You know, you absolutely shine. So I don't think there's any worry about that. But this last piece of work sounds really interesting, really fascinating. And yeah, I don't know what that looks like. And, you know, if anyone out there, you know, you, you know, you, you have some amazing, inspiring people. If anyone wants to be part of that or has ideas or wants to contribute, then, you know, I'm totally open. It's, it's very, very early stages. And my next step is to kind of bring together, you know, a collection of people to kind of start to flesh out what that really looks like. I mean, I've, you know, I've very little idea at this point. It's, yeah, very early days. I'm friends with a woman who's a, well, she calls herself a widow coach, but a grief coach. So the other side of it, you know, when people leave and women are left behind, how and a very, a, a woman that's become very, not a close friend, but a good friend over Instagram has just lost her husband, um, famous husband. And so, so what I'm trying to say in all of this clumsiness is fucking hell, yes, there's a need. And maybe that's where I can help you more and where we can help you more. So yeah, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put a post up saying we're doing this anyway, but I'll share in the show notes how people can get in touch with you via Instagram. I'll keep it all on that platform um, or LinkedIn. Yeah. And I'm really interested to take you back to 
Friday night dinners, really, and time with particularly maybe maternal grandma taking you swimming in that flat by the sea. I'm, I'm interested in what lessons from that time you've, you've held dear and, you've, and you clutch onto now. The biggest thing that I think, I think of when I think back to that is the word that comes to mind is really all about freedom. There aren't many points in your life I think you, you really feel free. I don't know. I think I spent a lot of my life striving to, to find my path and to find things that genuinely give me that sense of freedom. I think it's taken me quite a long time to truly allow myself to feel that, if that makes any sense. Completely. And it's interesting. I was going to ask you earlier, and I didn't. I was going to ask you when you were traveling around, were you moving towards something or were you moving away from something? What were you looking for? And I would say, if I wrote everything you've done down on a sheet of paper, I would say you have always been free. You were like the personification of free. I'll have a month in, in wherever and I'll stay there for a year. Like you're one of the freest thinkers I've ever met. Mm. And I would never have guessed that that was something that you were continuing to seek because I would have said that you would have found it. Well, I think to begin with, if I'm honest with myself, I think I stayed away so long because I was running away from, but you know, my parents had a very messy divorce and life got very complicated. And I think it was... You know, living in Australia on the other side of the world did give me a huge sense of freedom. And so, yes, I think I probably always have had freedom, but I don't think I always have freedom without, this is really interesting, freedom without having a purpose and a meaning, I think, is a different kind of freedom. I think when you have structured your life and a purpose and a meaning, I think freedom means a lot more, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get, I get that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I had, I had, I did, I had extreme freedom for many years and, it took me living on the other side of the world to get that freedom. You know, my childhood was in many ways quite a conservative childhood. You know, you, you grew up in this tight Jewish community. And, and so you move to the side of the world and, you know, you work in advertising and you do have a lot of freedom. But I spent a lot of years, I think, still searching for things. And I think, ironically, the last three years have been probably the happiest years I've had because I, you know, actually for the first time have stability and having a home and a place and a husband and things around me that I love and space and quiet to create and you know you finally get to a point where it all kind of makes sense that's really interesting and you know, did freedom come from having a better mirror from being able to see yourself in the reflection of somebody else did that bring freedom it's quite freeing I mean living in Sydney was amazing but I think it's quite freeing moving to a country where you know no one and no one knows you and you don't have to pretend to be anyone or be a certain way or do a certain thing you don't even have to do the career that you've done for 15 years like you you get to I guess to figure out what is important and the things that were important to you and build around that and so for me I suddenly realized that yes freedom fundamentally is the most important thing to me freedom to live my life the way I want but I also need to have you know, a purpose. And I also need to have that sense of adventure, you know, to do the things that I love. And when all that kind of comes together, you know, that freedom just tastes a lot better. Purposefully free. I love it. Sarah, thank you. And we will share everything that you do. And I hope you have many, many more years of dropping the most glittering breadcrumbs as you waltz through this free life that you've created for yourself. It's quite incredible to see. Thank you. I've loved, loved chatting to you and um, I'm not planning on going anywhere. So, <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Mark. No, thank you.